Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. The football, the football podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to episode two of Game of Thrones. I'm Jack McCarter, your host. I'm joined again this week by Phil. Hello, Phil. Hey, mate. How you doing? I'm great, thank you. How are you? Yeah, kind of fine. A little sick, but uh, very glad to be here now and to record a second episode. Great. And I'm also joined by Gertchan. Gertchan, who must be very satisfied with the Dutch national team. How are you doing? Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. I just returned from a stack party in Wales, so I wasn't able to see the match, but I just saw the highlights. And I'm very uh, positively surprised with this result. Uh, as we discussed in our last podcast, I thought uh, Germany was the clear uh, favorite. Also because Germany was playing at home, but also because I think the squad of Germany has more um, quality. So, yeah, to see uh, this result also, uh, the Netherlands uh, kind of dominating, especially in, in the second half, is very encouraging and uh, tells a lot about like where the Dutch team stands uh, in international football. Good to hear. And I'm also proud to announce a new signing for the team this week. Hopefully he's going to be more Ronaldinho than Cleberson. Eric Nicholson, our Brazilian new signing. Hello, Eric. Hey, Jack. How are things? It's a pleasure to be on the show. Eric, if you'd like to say a few words to introduce yourself for the audience. Yeah, well, basically I'm from Brazil, uh, Scottish mother, English father. So I'm a bit general with football, uh, support Grêmio in Brazil, Juventus in Italy and Newcastle in England. Very good. Well, welcome to the show and I hope you enjoy yourself on the pod. Okay, we're going to get right into it. And we are going to start with the international break. And we're going to start talking about the Germany against Netherlands match. It finished 4-2-2 to the Netherlands, um, who came back from 2-1 down. Gertchan, you must be completely satisfied with the game. In the second half, it was a masterclass in finishing from Holland. Tell us about the game. What did you think? To be honest, I was pretty disappointed by Germany. They played much more defensively than everybody would have expected, including the manager of the Netherlands, uh, Ronald Koeman. And uh, yeah, I was positively surprised by the Dutch attack. Uh, and there's definitely a lot of pace, even though not one of the players is yet uh, top quality. What is what is a very strong element of the of the attack of the Netherlands at the moment is that the p- three people at front can easily change position, which makes it very difficult uh, to defend. The Netherlands also doesn't have like a clear striker, like at the moment the Pai is playing, playing in striker position, but he can also easily go towards the wing. So that also opens up space for uh, midfielders like Ginaldo Wijnaldum uh, later, uh, but also for the other attackers, uh, Babel and Promes, to go into. Uh, what was the key, I think, in this match was a substitute. Uh, Ronald Koeman did around the 55th uh, minute when he brought in uh, proper for the Rhone. So while the Rhone is sort of like a vacuum cleaner, he's trying to steal the ball from the opponent. Uh, proper is much more creative player, uh, very good uh, with passing. And that also helped the Netherlands to become uh, more dominant uh, in the game. And I think uh, that uh, Ronald Koeman should also try to to play with um, 
with proper as much uh, as possible and also substitute him for uh, Jerome because I think the Netherlands uh, without a proper lacks quite a lot of creativity and I don't think Jerome add that much to the squad at the moment also because uh, you have uh, Wijnaldum and you have uh, De Jong who also uh, both players are very good in um, making the meters uh, they are both box to box players but they also are very good in um, taking over positions stealing the ball from the opponent very true um, you must be satisfied as well with Donio Malin of PSV just 20 years old making his debut scoring a debut goal he's had quite a successful time at PSG uh, PSV so far 11 goals in 39 games um, one for the future yes definitely at the moment, PSV has two very talented players, uh, Bergwijn and Malen. Actually, they both come from the Ajax Academy. So Bergwijn was sent off um, at Ajax when he was around uh, 16 years old. And after he was sent away by Ajax, he decided to join PSV. Well, uh, Malen left Ajax when he was 17 years old in order to join the Academy in, uh, at Arsenal. And although he never made it to the first team, uh, he has further developed himself as a player at Arsenal. And when he came to PSV uh, last year, he made Im- immediately like a very good uh, impression. And I think uh, Malen might even be the most talented of the two players. Uh, what, what is really good about Malen, he has a very good pace, he's very technical, very good uh, with uh, dribbling but also uh, what makes him a very versatile player and also a very useful player for both uh, PSV and the Dutch team is that he easily switches from position so at PSV he often plays in striker position but he also can move to the wing and uh, therefore he can also change position for example with Bergwijn or when he was still playing at PSV uh, Lozano and they also have like a new uh, Portuguese uh, player Bruma, who is also like kind of a winger, but who also can easily change position with Bergwijn and Malen, and that makes it as as a defense really difficult to play against the PSV attack, but also to play against the Dutch attack when you have like so, so many versatile um, players in the attack, uh, such as uh, the who is originally a winger, but who also and especially at the Dutch team can play as um, as a striker and then also other wingers who also can at the same time play in the striking position such as uh, Malen but also uh, Bergwijn and also uh, Babel. Very good. I have to say I watched the game and I thought that Germany were completely overrun in the second half. They got a very fortuitous penalty to make it 2-2 and after that the Dutch were just dominant. They seemed to have more energy, they seemed to be fitter. The midfield of Frenkie de Jong and um, Ginny Wijnaldum were completely dominant. Uh, Memphis Depay is carrying on his good form from Lyon in the national team. And I just thought Germany looked very shaky, especially in defence. Ta and Sula, the central defenders, were regularly dragged out of position. And you have to say, Germany, maybe Yogi Löw's time is up. Maybe this is definitely the end of an era. But the question is, can Yogi Löw rebuild again? Moving along now, it's hard to know what to talk about with the international break because it's not very popular with fans, is it, Phil? I I know you're not a big fan of the international break. Why is that? Well, I was when I was a kid or when I was a young lad. But um, nowadays, that we play a tournament during a qualification um, is absolutely senseless to me. Um, I think 
it's a noble idea to to create a tournament for smaller teams or smaller countries to to have a go at it but i think what do you always have to have to keep in mind is what Jurgen Klopp was talking about i think uh, a couple of weeks ago the schedule is already so full and um it gets fuller and fuller and um we got to a point where people think they need a football match every three days but you don't you know this is not a soap opera this is not a tv schedule thing this is football but it, it became something like that and people are so tired if you look at the success of the english national team at um, big tournaments to me much of it it is down to fatigue because players have no winter break and um, players like Steven Gerrard or Frank Lampard or Paul Scholes they played 60-70 matches during a season on the highest level and then they went to a big tournament <laughs> I have to say uh, you have to really understand that those players are just tired during the quarterfinal or semi-final stage and I think it doesn't make sense to play um, a Nations League. We should only focus on um, the normal qualification rounds and we can amend them to give the smaller teams a bigger opportunity. And as we already see, they're making big strides. If you look at Albania, they're up and running in their group. And I, oh, I think I made a mistake there. I think it's the Kosovo. It's not Albania. Yeah, it's the Kosovo. But still... Um, those lads are very, very close to their first major tournament, which is absolutely brilliant to see. And I think the Nations League is not the reason for it, you know. And I think um, UEFA or FIFA would love to promote it as the reason, but I don't believe in it. And I think um, club football is always better than international football because of the quality, because if you exclude players because of their nationality, you restrict yourself to a certain level of quality which makes the football less good and if you look um, at club football what i love so much about it is and why it's such a big role model for society in most cases there is a group of 22 players and 30 40 people stuff all from all over the world it doesn't matter which religion which country they're from nothing matters they just have one common goal and they work for it as a team and support each other and this is why i love club football so much and it's a big big role model for society if you look how players are getting along who are from such different cultures um, have such different backgrounds and are still big mates and support each other for long periods of time i think that is way more important uh, today and um yeah i can just end this with the international break is actually shit <laughs> very good i have to say you touched on the small teams there and there has been a real improvement in the so-called minnows luxembourg in the last 12 months have won five out of ten of their competitive fixtures they got a nil nil draw in paris in the 2018 world cup qualifying gibraltar only formed in 2016 four wins for such a small country such a small nation it's it's quite incredible what Gibraltar are doing and you saw just, even this weekend Liechtenstein managed to get a 1-1 draw away with Greece you could say that this, maybe the gap is narrowing a little bit Eric what do you think? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you have the new teams like Phil mentioned, uh, Kosovo, which are improving, and some other ones like Cyprus, you could argue, and they're taking it more serious, I guess, with the more places in the Euro now. Um, there's a bigger chance for them getting there. Very much so. Um, we have a question for one of our fans, Damien. Damien um, would like to know, Phil, if England have the potential to win the next European Championships or the World Cup, and do you think this England team is better than the golden generation of the late 90s to early 2000s? Potential, yes. But um, I think winning a major tournament is down to way much more than just potential. So if, if we're only looking at potential, I think there are at least mm, five to ten countries who can win it. But as we have seen in the in the past with Greece, for example, um, anyone can win it. Doesn't matter how much potential you have on paper. But of course, you have to say, if you consider the last ten years, this is a young, exciting squad with with players um, who are really, really playing nice, attacking football. And because I always um, kind of supported the English national team a little bit, if I'm supporting one country um most of the time it's england and that's just down to my club players playing for that um for that national team and my club coming from england but football has been dull to say the least and it's getting way better now with uh, gareth at the helm those young lads are really trying and i think it's another generation of experienced players in that squad the hendersons of 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 these days are just different to the to the scolds and lamparts of of back in the day so um i think they have what it takes they have to find a starting 11 i think that's m the most important thing at the moment um during those nation league uh, matches and during the qualification rounds to really focus on finding those first 13 14 players to go at the tournament to really go at teams you know people who who played for two years with each other so but they can form a really really great group there and and go very far and and i back them to to go for at least the semi-final but regarding the golden generation if if you look only at the individuals there is no comparison here we're talking about huge huge legends in the english game we're talking about big big players you know um we're talking about beckham about skulls about neville about all those great players that dominated the premier league with united we're talking about um steven gerrard who was maybe the best midfielder of a whole generation we're talking about frank lampard john terry so many great great players actually only a great goalkeeper is missing um so that was such a big team if you look at the individual quality but individual quality doesn't win matches a team does and i think you have a bigger chance with this group as they are maybe a little bit closer to each other when when you look at the quality and there are no superstars in there and i think that makes a huge difference and um we're in another in another time now and um the the individuals are not that important anymore it's all about the group and i think this team can go very far thank you phil england of course won four nil against bulgaria um, in very convincing fashion on saturday harry kane got a hat trick um 25 england goals now um wayne rooney the record holder the record holder 
at Harry Kane's age had just 11, there's a good possibility that Harry Kane could be on course to break Wayne Rooney's England goal-scoring record. What do you think, Gertrude? Do you think Kane is in with a chance? For sure, Jack. Kane has been consistent over the last uh, couple of seasons. Uh, obviously, he's a top-quality striker. He has a good team around him, also with players such as Sterling, uh, but also Della Ali, who can provide the necessary assist for him to increase his goal tally. So as long as he could uh, avoid injuries, he has a very good chance, in my opinion, in order to obtain the record from Rooney. Thank you very much, Gertrán. Uh, moving along, we've decided to talk about Germany's most famous club, Bayern Munich, today. As we all know, Bayern Munich... Although they won the league last year, it's widely accepted that this Bayern side was the worst in a good few years. Um, you could definitely see the breakup of a team that had been allowed to grow old together. Although Bayern won the league, they were completely dominated in the Champions League by Liverpool, much to Phil's pleasure. Um, it was the first time they hadn't reached the quarterfinal of the Champions League since 2011. And Phil, what do you think Bayern are doing to rebuild? First of all, I have to say this is complaining for Bayern Munich supporters at a very high level. <laughs> they have been dominating their league, their country for almost 20 years now. I think from 1999 on with Ottmar Hitzfeld to now, um, they have been the absolute dominant side in Germany. They haven't been throughout the 90s when I was a kid. But this dominance must fade someday. And um, there's a change of generations now at the club. What I always liked about the club, what is today like it was then, is that this club is in, in every position is full of ex-players. Doesn't matter which department actually. When I was, that's, this is a funny anecdote when I was a kid. Um, I think I was seven years old and we went to a Bayern Munich store. And um, I don't know if I admitted that already, but when I was a kid, I was a Bayern Munich supporter because they were playing in red and Jürgen Klinsmann was there. So yeah, what's not to love? I wanted um, a jersey and it was a little bit too expensive for my parents. So they said, come on, you will get a shirt and still a number on a name on the back. So I got my shirt with uh, Giovanni Elber on the back and the guy in the shop who sold it to us was actually an ex-player who was running the shop now. You know, his name is um, Hans Pflügler. He played for Germany uh, and uh, Bayern in the 80s. And I think he's he's a multiple um, German champion and so on. And this goes through the whole club and was always like that. And if you look at the board, the most two most important people in this club, Uli Hoeneß and Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, those are ex-players from the 70s and 80s. I think most people nowadays might not know, but um, Uli Hoeneß had to cut short his career with 27 and then went straight into management. He was one of the best strikers in the world. He's a, a European Golden Boot winner. He's a World Cup winner. He's a European champion. He's a Champions League winner or European Cup winner back then. And he won everything that there is to win, went straight into management when Bayern Munich was almost bankrupt, actually. They had a debt of uh, 1 million euros or um, Deutschmarks at the time, which um, was a lot in the 70s. And um, he made the biggest and one of the best clubs in the world out of it and the financially most healthy. And now 
him and Rummenigge, they are too old. They have to go now. Actually, they, they should have been gone maybe 10 years ago. But um, as you might have seen when they appointed Matthias Sammer as sporting director, they tried before to find the right people to continue what they started. Um, and I think they found it now in ex-players like Hasan Salihamidzic, who was a um, great player and won everything with Bayern. And now with um, the big, big legend with Oliver Kahn going to the board in January. Um, I think they found two players or two people with big ambition, even outside of the pitch, two very, very honest guys and who are who have just Bayern in their DNA. And I think that's the right way to, to keep this tradition going. And if you look at the transfers, it was not ideal because Uli Hoeneß maybe <laughs> was a little bit too, too confident uh, at the beginning of the transfer window, um, telling everybody, I think I said that before, he told the media, you have no idea what we already have in the bag. And it was not that much. But I have to admit the solutions they found at the end of the transfer window in Perisic and Coutinho is actually pretty great. And those players will only improve that team of youngsters. And um, I really like that they changed their philosophy when you look at the transfers. Because in the past, most of the players that were signing were already great players or superstars at their clubs. And now they're going for young, fresh, hungry talent. Going for a player like Sané instead of Neymar. Which is great to see. And um, I can't wait to see how that Bayern team will shape up in the next two years. And um, Niko Kovac at the moment seems to be the right guy. I like him very much. But let's see if he can push Bayern to the to the very top of European football again in the next two years. Uh, that will be very interesting to see. You have to say one thing I've always admired about Bayern is that they don't go out and spend millions and millions and millions on players until uh, this summer, last January. The record signing for Bayern was Javi Martinez for something like 55 million euros. They broke that by signing Lucas Hernandez for 80 million euros. Um, the, I think the deal was agreed in January. But they, they do so well at strengthening their team without spending they, they spend money, but not ludicrous amounts of money, you know? They're happy to just take the best players from the other German teams. Uh, if you look in the past few years, Mario Goetze, Mats Hummels, Robert Lewandowski, massive signing, Goretzka from Schalke. And they, they always seem to do it with a plan. They always seem, it seems to be very well thought. Um, and as you said, that has a lot to do with the structure. Gertrand, perhaps you can draw a parallel with Ajax because Ajax is another well-run club that spends money, but spends money wisely. And that's becoming a rare thing in football these days. Definitely, Jack, you can make a parallel, actually, between Bayern and uh, Ajax. When Johan Cruyff uh, ignited his uh, so-called Velvet Revolution, actually, uh, Bayern Munich was the main example for Ajax. So what uh, Johan Cruyff wanted to achieve when he ignited his revolution in 2011 was to have players, uh, all football players, at the top of the management layers at Ajax. So back in 2011, actually there were uh, quite a lot of problems at Ajax. The team was not performing well, was very, performing very poorly in the Champions League. At the 
same time there was not uh, not a lot of uh, players that uh, managed to reach the first team at the same time ajax was playing buying too many mediocre uh, players and also the financial situation at ajax was not very good so what Cruyff uh, wanted to achieve is uh, to implement kind of the same model as at Bayern Munich to have like all players who know about football, uh, who know about like how it is to, to play at the top um, in the main uh, management position. So he draw all footballers around him, such as Bergkamp, uh, also um, Jung. And uh, they started to uh, agitate against like how things were run at Ajax. And eventually they managed to take over uh, the main uh, foundation at Ajax and replace uh, the management at Ajax. And uh, yeah, what, what has been really beneficial is especially the role that has been played uh, by uh, Van der Sar and by Mark Overmars with Van der Sar being the general head of Ajax and uh, Mark Overmars being the director of football. And I think the big benefit of that is, uh, especially their reputation around the world, uh, opens new doors also in terms of uh, commercial activities, having uh, a famous goalkeeper as at Van der Sar at the helm of the club really has uh, helped uh, to open doors, new doors in the US, for example, as and in China and also can sometimes be beneficial for uh, negotiations with other teams um, and Mark Overmars uh, as director of football has been very successful in establishing uh, a network also using his contacts with all players for that and also has direct connections with a lot of like uh, influential people at um, at the main clubs um, in the world uh, also because of his uh, career uh, as a player which also can sometimes be beneficial uh, in getting a little bit more out of the negotiations than uh, he would have uh, without um, having such a rich history as a player. And also, I think the club being led by two uh, major old players, uh, Van der Sar and Mark Overmars, makes it also interesting for other players to join, uh, especially for talented young players to join Ajax, because they can see that football really runs through the veins of the organization. At the same time, they can see uh, all players uh, such as uh, Van der Sar and Overmars, but also the, uh, the players that are playing a very important, uh, all players that play a very important role in the youth academy around the club. Uh, also, uh, Kluivert was, for example, an important um, trainer at Ajax, but also all players like uh, Ronald de Boer and... Um, also Michel Craig, uh, they, they are helping um, uh, the, the players to develop, sharing stories, uh, they are approachable and uh, that really helps uh, for players to, uh, to develop themselves, to also learn from people who have played at the top and also helps uh, them to understand the Ajax culture which is being nurtured at the club. 
Thank you very much, Gertrude. Um, Eric, you must be listening with a lot of jealousy here, obviously being a Newcastle supporter. The structure and stability of a football club isn't something that you'd be particularly familiar with. These two teams, Bayern and Ajax in particular, and we're going to talk about Sevilla later, these two teams are a shining example of how it should be done. Is that right? Yes, I agree totally. Uh, be nice to see stability like that at Newcastle. But Mike Ashley basically spends money every now and then to keep the fans quiet. Uh, but yeah, Bayern's great. They they spent a long time, I think it's from 2007 until 20, it was in 2017 that they broke the transfer money spent in that summer window. So it was like 10 years that they took. That was when they had spent money on Luca Toni, Ribéry and Close. And then only in 2017 that they started renewing his squad and spending money again. So they had a really good um, base with that money and it was very successful with Champions League, Bundesliga. Very much so. Um, if we look across the continent now um, to Spain... Uh, well, um, um, I, I really have to add and uh, I think Eric's opinion as a supporter is is very important on this i think we can all agree that uh, for newcastle to do well in the future mike ashley has to leave the club absolutely uh with mike ashley the thing is that newcastle is a good way for him to show his company which i will not name uh, and basically get the money for that premier league uh gives him and just spend the minimum necessary to keep in the Premier. There's no sporting ambition, there's no project behind it. It's just maintaining the club alive and machines and trying to get it through to the next season. It's uh, indeed very sad times for Newcastle fans. And if we now look across the continent, we can um, see another example of a club with ambition and the importance of a director of football this year, Monchi returned to Sevilla after a spell at AS Roma. Monchi, of course, first took over at Sevilla in the year 2000 and promptly began to set up a scouting network, which in the end totaled over 700 scouts across the world. Monchi has been credited with discovering players of the caliber of Ivan Rakitic, obviously Sergio Ramos, um, Alberto Moreno, Jose Antonio Reyes. The list is long and under his Stewardship as director of football at Sevilla. Sevilla won 11 trophies in total, including three Europa Leagues in a row under Unai Emery. And with other examples in Europe, you can look at Sven Mislintat when he was at Borussia Dortmund and then at Arsenal and Edwin van der Sar at Ajax. It, it just goes to show how important the director of football role is becoming. And it, it always has been, but now more than ever, it's important that the big clubs are run by people who know the football side of of the club and have a clear plan on how to take the club forward. Isn't that right, Gertrude? Yes, definitely, Jack. I need to correct you, though, because uh, Mark Overmars is the director of football at Ajax and not Edwin van der Sar. Van der Sar is uh, basically the CEO at Ajax. But I think, uh, yeah, a director of football with a clear strategy also, with the ability uh, of long-term thinking is very uh, beneficial uh, for the team. And also, uh, you can see that uh, at Ajax, um, Mark Overmars has very long experience nowadays as uh, director of football, and he really thinks ahead. And that was particularly visible 
um, at this uh, transfer period at Ajax. So uh, you already see Ajax um, buying players who should replace one of the key players uh, next year. At the same time, uh, you see at Ajax uh, that the key players of last year uh, have been willing to extend their uh, contract. So uh, Stadic, for example, has signed a very long contract of like uh, uh, until 2023 and he really wants to main, uh, remain part of the Ajax team uh, and also hopefully eventually uh, retire at Ajax and uh, yeah he will be one of the main pillars uh, of the future and uh, despite like the interest that there was for him uh, from different countries China but there were also some rumors Bayern Munich wanted to have him Mark Overmars uh, managed to convince uh, Tadic to stay at Ajax and also he's been named uh, captain now in order to uh, highlight like the importance he has for the team. But uh, aside from Tadic, uh, who has been signed for the longer uh, term, uh, Ajax also has extended the contracts of Sieg, uh, of Neres, of Tagliafico, of Onana. And uh, what uh, Mark Overmars basically did was to sit on the table with them, uh, discuss their their future, what their uh, wishes were in terms of like their next transfer, and then uh, in, ex- uh, in exchange for a raise of their salary, and in exchange for a kind of gentle agreements that Ajax would be willing to sell them uh, perhaps uh, at the end of, uh, of the next um, year. Uh, they they would uh, sign uh, a longer contract of Ajax to make sure that Ajax wouldn't uh, lose too many influential players uh, uh, this transfer period, especially after losing already uh, Frankie de Jong and uh, Matthijs Licht. That also enables Ajax to build uh, basically on the, on, the, on the squad that uh, has to be established after these uh, key players such as uh, Sier, uh, Neres, uh, Taglifico, Onana uh, leave the club. And you already see that Ajax is making efforts towards that, uh, especially like the signing of um, Lisandro Martinez has been really uh, amazing. I mean, he has been scouted very well in uh, Argentina and he is already like um, one of the better players at the team and is also like a potential replacement of uh, for uh, for Schönen, who left uh, the club um, this transfer period, but also uh, could be a potential uh, replacement uh, long term for even for uh, Daily Blind if he decides uh, to leave the club. And also part of this long term thinking is the uh, youth academy. So at Ajax, uh, there is. Um, quite some talented youth, especially in midfield positions. And in order to provide space for this youth, uh, main names uh, that might make their debut uh, this year are uh, Gravenberg and uh, Unufar. Especially Unufar is, is, is amazingly talented, very technical. Um, he has uh, a great passing style. He's a very exciting prospect. and. Um, for Ajax, you really need to think about how to, f- to fit these young players into the team also for the next season. So therefore, you have to be also very uh, careful with your purchases in order uh, to ensure that uh, despite making sure that the team uh, meets the standard, there's still 
uh, room for these players to make their de- debut within the team. Thank you very much, Gertrand. Coming back to Sevilla, um, Monchi is famous as being the best in the business um, when it comes to to running a football club. He did have a mixed time at Roma, though. Um, he made a couple of good signings, youth potential in Justin Clivert from Ajax and Zaniolo. He also got a lot of money for the sales of Mohamed Salah and Alisson to Liverpool. But Roma came up short in Serie A and in the Champions League again. But they've had a strong start to the season, um, Sevilla. They've made 11 new signings and they've allowed high-profile players such as Pablo Sarabia to leave to PSG and Ben Yedder to leave to Monaco. Seven points from a possible nine so far, Eric. It's going well. Do you think they're pleased that Monkey has come back? Absolutely. What I find interesting is that they didn't spend a lot of money on one single player. Um, if my knowledge is right, I think they didn't spend more than something like £25 million pounds on players. So with Koundé, Ronnie Lopez, Tabor, Ocampos, there were, it seemed to be nowadays football cheap signings. So there's a lot of talent, but you know, not a lot of money spent and only one it seems to be well distributed. Very much so. Um, it will be interesting to see how Sevilla do, uh, do this season with Real Madrid rebuilding, Barcelona. Bas- both Barcelona and Real Madrid have had shaky starts this season. I know it's early days, but Atletico and Sevilla looking strong, looking good. And it will be interesting to see if Sevilla can keep this up throughout the season. We spent a long time talking about clubs with stability. And now we're going to talk about possibly the biggest circus in Europe, PSG in France. PSG obviously hitting the headlines on deadline day again with the signing of Mauro Riccardi, initially on a year-long loan with an option to buy for 65 million euros at the end of the season. It's a shame our friend Davide isn't here really because I know he has lots to say on Mauro Riccardi. Phil, your thoughts. Is it one of the greatest circus performers joining one of the greatest circuses? Definitely. He's he and um, his surroundings, his, his agent who is at the same time his wife and his mates. It's a big circus, but it's going to be fun to see <laughs> how that pans out when he when he meets the other circus of Neymar. But to me, this is a huge scam. How football developed to this, I'm very, very frustrated, to be honest. It's just a big, big reflection of uh, what is going wrong on this world, which is basically capitalism. If you look what happened there, there's a player who... I think no matter what he says in public does not want to play for Inter Milan again and there is a club that does not want him to wear the shirt again and they extend the contract to get more money out of it a year later. This to me is, I don't know, this is fraud, this is scam, this is this is not football and I'm totally against this kind of thing. I, I think if you look at the Italian clubs, there are so many loans, not because they try to, to cheat, because they don't have as much money as clubs in other countries. So they basically rely on a loan system. And I think sometimes there are very suspicious loans there as well. But the Icardi thing, to me, is just a huge scam. And PSG and every club which is being run like this, this is like cancer to football cancer to us football fans i think i mentioned my my discontent and my let's say maybe it's even hate 
for clubs like Red Bull Leipzig in the last episode, this is just so wrong and those football clubs shouldn't be there. I think, of course, clubs like PSG, Chelsea or Man City, they have tradition. Of course, they should be in the first two leagues of their countries, but they don't belong to the top. They never did and they just bought that right. And I think it's totally wrong and I have a lot of admiration for Monkey, how he did it now at Sevilla with such a small budget, buying so many players, selling so many players, restructuring in a right way. Very, very, very impressive. And PSG, yeah, as you said, it's just a big circus. Uh, but from a purely footballing perspective, Eric, um, Icardi, it's 111 goals and 164 games for Inter. Make no mistake, he's a huge talent. Do you see Thomas Tuchel being able to get the best out of a front line containing Icardi, Cavani, Mbappe and Neymar? Uh, well, I think Icardi is a bit like Argentina, his nationality, you know, a lot of talent up front, but it's never really worked well. PSG do score the goals in the French League, but then again, the French League is not, let's say, first class. So I think he will bang in at least, you know, 15, 20 goals if he keeps his head in the right place and injury-free. But it'll be interesting uh, seeing Cavani, Icardi and Neymar in the same dressing room uh, trying to get to a consensus and respect Tuchel. I don't think Tuchel will last past this season. Uh like City, Paris Saint-Germain are in it for Champions League, not so much for Premier. Premier City, okay, they want to break records and stuff, but, you know, PSG and League One is just, you know, they play it because it's their national league. But if they could, they'd just do Champions League, but they will falter again. They have not signed where they have to, and they generally just wreck young talent like... Gonzalo Guedes, Los Celso, if they want to further their careers, they need to leave PSG. So, yeah, it'll be an interesting season. It's interesting, the contradiction between these superstar signings. And you, you have to say this summer, they have made some astute signings. Pablo Sarabia from uh, from Sevilla, Sergio Rico as well, uh, goalkeeper Keira Navas, and Ander Herrera from Manchester United. They do seem to want to partner the industrious, hardworking, passionate players with the superstars. But it's always the superstars that take the headlines and make a negative image for the club. And PSG has just seemed perceived to be this this club of celebrities and egos. And as one of our fans, Jordan, asked, can PSG really win the Champions League when there are so many egos and it seems so little... So little competition in Ligue 1 for a start. I mean, they win their league by February, maybe March. And you're just wondering... Gertrude, is the lack of competition in the league costing them in the Champions League? Because in the past few years, you have to say that well, they have they've never got beyond the quarterfinal, and you have to say what do they have to do to get further? I don't necessarily think that the competition should be an impediment. If you look at Ajax, the Dutch competition is even lower in terms of standards than the French competition, but still Ajax managed to to reach uh, the semi-finals even though there's sometimes really little competition for Ajax uh, within the Dutch uh, Eredivisie. So it's not necessarily the competition, although I think it plays the role, especially if you don't have to go 100% every match. 
And that might also explain why the English teams did so well uh, this previous Champions League and Europa League season. As, as they are facing very stiff competition every time and they are really up for the, for the big matches. And that might be a little bit more difficult for teams to play, play in the lower leagues, such as Paris Saint-Germain and Ajax. But I think in terms of like Paris Saint-Germain, what also plays a role is the very big pressure that's upon the team to perform well in the Champions League because everybody takes it already for granted that they will win Ligue 1 and that they will win the cup. So the only thing they can really like impress people with, impress the fans with, make people really enthusiastic is, is winning the Champions League. It's, it's kind of like similar as the dynamic you will probably now see at Manchester City after they won uh, the treble. Their, their main uh, priority will be the, uh, the Champions League, but that also puts an additional pressure upon the team to perform well uh, within the Champions League. And it might be the case that some players or maybe even uh, the manager Guardiola might budge under that pressure. And what I also want to note is that Paris Saint-Germain has actually also been quite unlucky in the last couple of uh, seasons in the Champions League. So a little bit of luck is also really required in order to succeed, which makes it not impossible for Paris Saint-Germain to win the Champions League this year. But I'm not sure if they are stable enough, if they will find kind of an equilibrium between, especially as already Eric pointed out, uh, between the different strikers at the team now also. Icardi is joining Neymar and Cavani at front and also managed to integrate the more industrial players well within the team. And uh, yeah, for Tuchel to to find a very good mix will be challenging, I would say, also given the pressure that's already upon him. At the same time, a league uh, provides more uh, opportunity also, especially against the lower uh, ranked teams to experiment more in order to find the right combination in order to make Paris Saint-Germain a main challenger for the Champions League. I have to agree with Gertrude on every uh, uh, level, but from a from a supporter's perspective, uh, I know we, we try to talk about football in on every level. And from a supporter's p- uh, perspective, I'm someone who always supported Olympique Marseille who always had a huge soft spot for this team since I was a small kid and clubs like Olympique Marseille like Olympique Lyon like maybe Monaco they feel kind of robbed of of titles of opportunities because there comes this son of a billionaire around the corner splashes cash everywhere you know like he's in a strip club getting getting the 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 hottest looking prospects for his team and if you have superstars all around you can't can't not win those domestic titles and it's just it's just a shame for clubs like Olympique Marseille and for their supporters that they are being robbed Interesting perspective, Phil. Coming back to PSG, Eric, I'd like your Brazilian perspective on Neymar. It's been another drawn-out transfer saga this year. Will he, won't he, to Barcelona? Some crazy, crazy player plus cash deals. I I heard 100 million plus Rakitic 
Dembele, who didn't want to leave Barcelona, Rakitic, Dembele and Umtiti. And there were so many different combinations plus money that Barcelona were offering to try and get Neymar back. In the end, they didn't succeed. Neymar has a very strained relationship with the PSG supporters. What's the Brazilian's perspective? What do what do Brazilians think of Neymar? I mean, he's such a talent. And I'm just wondering what the thoughts are back home of Neymar's current situation. Well, basically, people think that if he spent less time rolling around on the floor than actually playing football, uh, he'd be more appreciated. The fact is, he just wants to go where money calls him. So, you know, if Real Madrid come knocking on the door tomorrow offering a load of cash, he'll say, my dream is always to play for Real Madrid. If Barcelona come along, he'll say that he'll love to play for Barcelona. So, yeah, I, I just can't see him. For me, he's almost like an ex-player, a bit like Ronaldinho Gaúcho, you know. Bags of talent can be the best in the world if he wants to. But at the end of the day, he just wants to stay in his yacht, you know, have champagne, some girls playing around in a pool, and that's it, you know. Nothing wrong with that. The guy is rich, you know. You need to enjoy life the way you think is the best. But, you know, the guy's still young for footballing terms. Let's remember Zidane at the age that he was, playing a final of a World Cup, you know, making a big difference. Ronaldinho Gaúcho could have played the 2014 World Cup, maybe helped Brazil to not be thumped at home 7-1. Uh, Neymar, you know, I just can't see anything. And he's just basically walked back into the Brazilian team now because Everton was doing fine, you know, was decisive in Copa America and Neymar just walked back in. So, yeah, he'll disturb the balance of his squad just like in PSG. You'll do it for Brazil also. It, it's such a shame because if you look at Neymar's goal-scoring record, especially for Brazil, I think he's only two or three goals behind Ronaldo now. And that's, for his age, that's absolutely extraordinary. And it's just it's just crazy that he can't get his head together and concentrate on what matters. Because for, do you agree with me that he has all the tools to become a, a legend? If he applied himself, he could be one of the, the, the greatest players of all time, maybe. Yeah, he could maybe, maybe make top five. But um, the way things are going, he will be reminded of basically as a Robinho with more skill. So, you know, could have been much better, ended up not being anything. And that is not a favourable comparison when we see what happened to Robinho. Moving on, back to English football. There's been a high publicised feud this week between Alan Shearer and Michael Owen over Twitter. It seems that Michael Owen is trying to sell as many copies of his new autobiography as possible. He's been questioning Alan Shearer's loyalty to Newcastle back in the day, blaming him for Newcastle's relegation in 2009. And also saying that moving from Real Madrid to Newcastle was a step down. So how many clubs... Has Michael Owen completely burnt his bridges at now? I, 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 I can't think of a player so universally hated by all the clubs he's played for. And he certainly won't endear himself to, to the Geordies with his latest outburst. What do you, Eric? Absolutely not. The guy has a real talent for upsetting everyone. So, you know, I respect him as a footballer. I think he's really good. Injury took the worst of him. But at the end of the day, he just wanted to know about money, you know. It's quite easy after careers ended to start complaining about everyone. So, you know, Newcastle took Newcastle signed him after a bad spell at Real Madrid. 
you know, you should be thankful for the club investing so much money, being such a huge wage to him, for him to instead of that just keep complaining about a crowd, all because the crowd booed me, the crowd complained. You know, you're a professional footballer, that's your career, you know, just get accustomed to it, suck it up. Very much so. Phil, I know you're going to have something to say on Michael Owen. Over to you, mate. I don't need to tell the people what you think of Michael Owen. Um, Go ahead. We're listening. Well, as much as I try to be neutral about this, Michael Owen is just a player or a person. You just can't trust. You just can't believe him. To me, he's the biggest traitor Liverpool Football Club ever had when he's on television as... The obvious Owen we all know. He he refers to Man United as we. And everyone who does that is not part of Liverpool Football Club anymore. And will always walk alone. And he burnt all of his bridges. And if I look at that. If I look how, how honest he seems. Or how loyal. Or how respectful. I have to say. I can't believe all the stories he's telling in his new book. Because he lacks credibility because of that behavior in the past. And if you look what he said about Steven Gerrard, that Liverpool wanted to get rid of him two years prior to 2015, is absolutely nonsense. I bet my life that Brenton Rodgers absolutely needed Steven Gerrard in his dressing room at the beginning. And I think those two were very close. I think Gerrard mentioned that he would have loved to to met Brenton at 25 rather than 33 because he had such a huge and, and, and great opinion on him or because he had this fresh breath of air and actually Brenton did very much right in footballing terms but a lot of things wrong maybe off the pitch. But to say that Michael Owen is, is saying these kind of things, I just don't believe him. Half of him, I don't believe. Maybe there's a truth in all of it, a little bit what he says. And um, I think Shira is sometimes a questionable person as well, but he's way more straightforward. He seems to be way more honest. And this is why I think he has more credibility in my eyes. But both of them are clowns to me. Both of them ridicule themselves in front of the public by doing this kind of things and... I always, always liked that people like Gerard or Lampard opted to not comment on, on stuff like that. So Michael Owen is, is somebody we don't need on TV, honestly, because he's not, there's a reason he's, he's known as obvious Owen. I don't need him, need him as a commentator or doing some ana- analysis on, on any match because it's it's just not worth to hear what he says because it's it's it lacks substance and i would say for somebody to be that boring on tv to tell so many interesting stories in a book at least half of it must be exaggeration and yeah there's a reason nobody likes him at his former clubs and i think he should go to a small dark room and think very hard about himself <laughs> like a little kid I have to say there are very few pundits there are some pundits I like and there are some pundits I don't like but th- there aren't many pundits where I look at, I look at Michael Owen and I think 
I could do a job better than you. Like, I could do this job, and I think anybody on this podcast could do a better job at analysing football than Michael Owen. Like, it, I, I, think, I think my dad, and I'm sorry to name-check you, dad, my dad isn't interested in football, and I think he could do a better job of analysing a football game than Michael Owen. <sighs> just sometimes it, the players sometimes just open their mouths just and they just seem to be digging a bigger hole for themselves Eric I don't think anybody will be buying him a pint on Tyneside anymore definitely not well for Alan Shearer definitely you know I think he's a much more honest and straightforward guy he's always been against Ashley's regime he's never like other people in Newcastle you know, started sucking up to Mike Ashley just because of money or special seats at the stadium. You know, he's always spoken out. He's a local guy. He left Blackburn after a title to play for the team that he was at. He had really good offers back in the day when Newcastle were not winning anything, but he said he was happy at Newcastle. And he stayed at Newcastle until the end of his career, so good for him. But, you know, different than Owen... The guy moved between Liverpool, United and Newcastle, so you can't really speak about loyalty. He's just... Mike Owen is just a clown, you know. I respect him for his talent, but, you know, you should just learn to shut up now and then. And we're moving on to a striker who probably is universally respected, Samuel Eto'o this week, announcing his retirement. Gertrand, 293 goals in 587 games across 13 different clubs, most notably at Mallorca, Barcelona, where he won the Champions League 2008-2009, and Inter Milan, where he won the Champions League in 2009-2010, becoming the first player ever to win the Champions League in two successive seasons at two different clubs. What can be said about Eto? Phenomenal striker and definitely one of the best of his generation. Yes, uh, one of the best uh, strikers of the last 20 years, in my opinion. Enormous composure in front of goal, a golden right foot, and also always like a very big threat with his pace. Uh, I think like he was one of the most difficult uh, number nine uh, to defend, especially during his time at uh, Barcelona and at Inter. And I still re- think uh, Barcelona regret uh, selling him in 2009 to Inter, where he made sure that he would get his revenge uh, at Guardiola by winning the Champions League with Inter at the expense of Barcelona. For sure. The, the thing about Eto, the thing that I really love about Eto, and that I love about a lot of African footballers is that they really haven't forgotten their roots. I, I work with a, with a guy from Cameroon called Jules and he talks about a lot of African players and particularly players from Cameroon who once they get money, they forget their roots. But you hear stories of Eto going home giving money to people, just having a drink like a normal guy in a bar. And you get the impression that he's someone who has stayed humble, who hasn't forgotten where he comes from. And I think that's what makes, that's what endears Samuel Eto to so many football fans. I mean, he started his career at Real Madrid, had the best part of his career at Barcelona. And I, I just don't think I just don't think it's possible to hate the guy. He's had his run-ins over the years, notably with Pep Guardiola, who he absolutely slaughtered on French TV a few years ago. But such a a, a well-respected footballer these days is rare. And I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. Definitely, definitely one of the best of his generation in 
probably one of the best African footballers of all time. We, we've we actually made a top 11 of the greatest African footballers ever. Not in any particular order, but I'm going to call the names out of the players we chose and I'd like your comments on them, guys. So we're going to start with Samuel Kafour. Eric. Fantastic defender. Had a great time at Bayern Munich. He wasn't flashy. He was just good, solid and consistent which I think is the recipe for a great player. Absolutely. Uh, George Weah, uh, Gertrán. Yeah, one of the first African players to really reach the top, of course. Uh, World Footballer of the Year uh, in 1994. Very quick pace, uh, very good technique, and also having still an impact today as a president of Liberia. So, yeah, just, just like as ATO, also very resilient, uh, perseverance, which also has been like a very important factor for him to, to reach the top. And I can still remember him playing at Paris Saint-Germain and later on at Milan, being at both clubs, one of their most important players. Most definitely. Eric, Abide Pele. Um, fantastic, great history, a guy... He's just like a symbol, like so many African nations, you know, they have these symbols of an era and it's sad that he didn't have a better team to play around in his day, but, you know, great nonetheless. And obviously has great genes. He's the father of Jordan and Andre Ayew, who are both very well-respected professional footballers in their own right now. Okay, I'll do one. Yaya Toure, a Premier League legend, in his prime, he was an absolutely brilliant footballer at Manchester City, instrumental in their first two title wins, bursting for midfield, strong runs, great free kicks, a great shot. He complemented the, the creativity of David Silva and Sergio Aguero so well. He was the power. He was the power in City's midfield. Some episodes in his career probably regrets. I remember the situation with the birthday cake. But Yaya Torre definitely deserves his place in this African top 11. Okay. Nwanko Kanu, Gertchan, fond memories? Yes, very fond memories about uh, Nwanko Kanu. I remember when he joined uh, the Ajax squad, which was like out of my head in 1994. He was like this big, tall Nigerian player with very big feet. He could actually really hold on to the ball for a very long while. He was kind of the secret weapon always Louis van Gaal brought into clubs, uh, especially if there was not a lot of space. Um, Noaka Kanu managed to hold the ball, managed to jungle it through the penalty area and always was like a significant threat for the opponent. He had uh, some bad luck in his career, also some some problems with his heart. But thankfully, nothing serious uh, has ha- happened uh, to him. And uh, yeah, at all the other clubs, he played for Ajax, uh, Arsenal, out of my head also uh, Bournemouth. He was one of the most steady players. He was kind of like a sort of like main warrior at, at the front of of the attack and also uh, because of his ability to hold up the ball he managed to make other um, players in the team better I I remember Kanu at Arsenal um, I remember Arsenal being I think it was in the 1999-2000 season Arsenal being 2-0 down to Chelsea and Kanu scoring a hat-trick and one of the goals he was almost parallel with with the byline how he managed to get the ball in from from such an angle I don't know but he was 
it, it's it was crazy. He's such a tall guy, and you like with tall players, you don't necessarily expect amazing technique. But I mean, to play on the Ajax team that won the Champions League in '95, you can't be a ba- bad player. And I really, really think Canu deserves his place in this list. Okay, Eric Didier Drogba. Fantastic. He came after that. You know, the start of the Abramovic era after Crespo and Shevchenko. But he came and just marked his name on Chelsea, you know, fantastic player, great for his nation, you know, just clinical. It's a joy to watch him. I'm far from being a Chelsea fan, but I just loved watching games because of him, you know. He's just all-round strength, shooting ability, you know, and a personality. Great dressing room guy, you know. Fantastic. Drogba, the thing that strikes me about Drogba is he was the ultimate man for the big occasion. I think he scored in something like nine or ten finals for Chelsea, the FA Cup, the Champions League. He was just any big occasion. The bigger the occasion, the better he was. And when he arrived from Marseille, he was already a strong, quick centre forward. But he turned into, again, not just a, a... a player blessed with athleticism. He turned into a really technical footballer. And I'm sure if Chelsea fans had a vote now, they would recognise Drogba probably in their top five best ever players because he was he was absolutely phenomenal. And I don't think Chelsea fans will forget the final of the 2012 Champions League in a hurry. Drogba was their hero that night. And Drogba, again, he's one of these players who does so much behind the scenes for for his home country and for his home continent. Absolutely fantastic and more than deserving of a place in this list. Okay, Gertchan, Roger Miller. Yeah, still the oldest uh, goal scorer at a world championship. I think that Argentina still has nightmares about his performance uh, in the the first game in the uh, world championship at 1990. He he was like one of the first African super uh, football stars he was very important for his nation, especially in 1990 when they reached the quarterfinal and uh, Cameroon lost against England. And I think as a striker, he also set the stage for the stars or other African stars to come, such as George Weah and later also DJ Jogba. And he also showed what was possible as a footballer from the African continent to reach the main international states and be successful in it. And also he gave a lot of like positive coverage to his country, Cameroon, which since 1990s always has been like a very important uh, football nation with regular uh, performances at the World Cup. Very much so. Eric, Mohamed Salah. Well, the guy is fantastic. Who would have thought many years ago from a Chelsea reject to winning Champions League and being a star he is today. Uh, probably Mourinho uh, is not proud of selling him, but, you know, that's part of football. The guy's great. Uh, hopefully we can see him at least in another World Cup for e- with Egypt and uh, we can see him on an international scene. And who knows, he might win a, a Premier League in the near future. From my perspective, hopefully not. The thing about Salah... It's very hard to remember a footballer who is so 
idolized by his own his home nation. I think during the African Cup of Nations, Vodafone were winning, were running a, a competition where everybody got eleven free minutes for every goal that Mohamed Salah scored, or something like that. And I, he's treated like a god when he plays for Egypt. He's really like the second coming, you know. And I can't think of many examples where someone has been so highly regarded in their country. Salah is. You see, you see Egyptians, you see people on the streets of Cairo wearing Liverpool shirts, and it's just crazy the the adulation they have for him. What is uh, nice to note about the adulation that there is for uh, Mohamed Salah in uh, Egypt is that uh, during the last uh, presidential elections, actually more than a million Egyptians voted for Mohamed Salah, even though he wasn't the presidential candidate. And he also didn't really want to run for president. But still, more than a million Egyptians took the effort to fill in his name in the voting booth. And also proving uh, the adulation that there is in Egypt for this guy. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, guys. I have to take this one. JJ Okocha. My word. I know he played for PSG who weren't a... Ma- they were a big club, but they weren't a massive club in the 90s. He never really played for a world-class team. But if you go onto YouTube and type in JJ Okocha Eintracht Frankfurt highlights, honestly, some of the goals he scored and what he did for Nigeria. They won the Olympics in 1996, I remember. It's just one of the most skillful players ever. He's going to be... Always going to be one of those cult players with just so much skill and so much... He is a street footballer on the pitch. I think English fans will remember him, obviously, um, at Bolton. Um, he played for Hull as well, but it was quite unspectacular there. His time at Bolton Wanderers, just... What what a player. What what a, He's one of those footballers. He probably won't be remembered as one of the greatest players in history, but he's just technically just a, a an absolute phenomenon. And he, he is one of my favourite players. One of my favourite players ever. Okay, and last but not least, Eric, Michael Essien. Uh, hard-working defensive midfielder, you know, every now and then had an absolute wonderful long shot from outside the area. Is great players, kind of sad the end of his career, you know, became really injury-prone and just became a backup player. But he was one of those defensive midfielders in Chelsea were great. You know, after Makelele, he came in and was that workhorse for Chelsea so yeah great guy okay now guys now we've picked 11 African footballers I want you to tell me your favorite African footballer of all time it could be one we've named or it could be a different one Gertchan who for you is the best African player ever no pressure DJ Drogba Didier Drogba tell me why I think by far he's, he's the best African player because of personality, because as Eric uh, pointed out, uh, his importance in dressing room, but also DJ Jogba, because he always, as you mentioned, Jack, uh, stood up in the really important matches. Of course, like we all remember the Champions League final of uh, Chelsea, but also in other major matches against the direct opponents of Chelsea. He was always there. He always stood up for his team. He could also hold up the ball, make other players better and both in terms of like being like a very athletic player but also being a very technical player 
I think he's been one of the best players of the Premier League in the last uh, 20 years. Thank you, Gertrude. Eric, what do you think? George Weah. Tell me why. Well, two Serie A titles with Milan, uh, won an FA Cup with Chelsea, champion with Paris Saint-Germain, um, and the whole symbol that he is in Liberia, you know, the, the political side and just the guy I think is great um, he does in fact his son plays for Paris Saint-Germain well used to play for Paris Saint-Germain went to Lille now and so you never know there might be a new wear coming around the corner of course Timothy Ware I think he represents the USA if I'm not mistaken absolutely yeah USA yeah it'd be interesting to see how he uh fairs in the future for sure well guys we've come to the end of the podcast today and it's been an absolute pleasure again remember to like us interact with us retweet us we're available on facebook and twitter and instagram and you'll be able to listen to this pod on wednesday on soundcloud spotify and itunes it was an absolute pleasure again guys get your questions in get your feedback in interact with us as much as possible and we will see you next time goodbye